This morning we turn in the Holy Scriptures to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. You will have noticed that we have gone often to these final chapters in John with regard to the work, labor of our Lord Jesus Christ and His states. And there is a reason for that. It's indicated in John himself when you consider that almost half of the book records what happens in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And then also those days following His resurrection. The Holy Spirit indicating, therefore, that these final chapters in John, beginning with 13, are very important. 14, that we read, is a part of Jesus' instruction to His disciples the night before He died. Instruction that's going to go on for several chapters. John 14, "...let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me." In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, We know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto them, unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father." And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. 
I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live. Ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that keepeth my commandments, and keepeth them. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him, and will manifest thyself myself to him. <clears throat> Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it? that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard... How I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice. Because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. This evening, or this morning, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18, and the four questions and answers there. What dost thou understand these words? He ascended into heaven. That Christ, in sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven. And that he continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. Is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world as he hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to His human nature, He is no more on earth, but with respect to His Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, He is at no time absent from us. But if His human nature is not present wherever His Godhead is, are not then these two natures in Christ separated one from another? Not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed, and yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally 
united to it. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that He is our advocate in the presence of His Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that He as the head will also take up to Himself us, His members. Thirdly, that He sends us His Spirit as an earnest by whose power we seek the things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God and not things on earth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the subject of Lord's Day 18, namely the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, is what we call the second step or stage of Christ's exaltation. That makes clear that the ascension of Jesus Christ was glory. It was an exalting of Jesus Christ. It was part of the transition from that state of humiliation, which was inglorious and shameful for our Lord Jesus Christ, a time of suffering, to now a state of glory and exaltation for our Lord Jesus Christ, an exaltation which first became visible and was manifest in His resurrection. This ascension of Jesus Christ we should see as being necessary. That is, necessarily important. Because it also belongs to the continuing work and labor of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can often misinterpret what our Lord Jesus Christ meant when He said on the cross, it is finished. We can misinterpret that to mean that Christ's work is finished. When in fact what Christ was referring to was His work specifically of atonement. The payment of sin. There was still much work for Him to do. And the resurrection and the ascension belongs to that work. The necessity of that work of our Lord Jesus Christ in ascending to heaven is demonstrated even by the approach of the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, as was the case with the resurrection, the Catechism is not primarily interested in the event itself, but rather explaining the benefit and the blessedness of it. You see, when Christ works, whether that work was on earth, whether that work was on the cross, or whether that work is related to His ascension and His continuing labors in heaven, there is always benefit. And that benefit is our salvation. The benefits listed here in the Catechism belong to and are a part of our salvation from sin and death. And that's the necessity of this work 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catechism here considers this ascension of Christ from the perspective of His continuing presence, or we might say from His presence, period. But then looks at that presence from three different perspectives. Looks at the benefit of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ from the perspective of His presence now. His presence now in heaven, but also His presence now in the earth. And then also His presence in the future. What does the ascension have to say about that? And then also with regard to that benefit, the Catechism lists it as being three particular aspects of our salvation. And it's worth noting by way of introduction that this is precisely why it's important for us to not minimize the importance of this event, say, for example, relative to the cross and resurrection. Hopefully, we can see this morning that the ascension of Jesus Christ is every bit as important, every bit as an important work of Jesus Christ as was His death on the cross and His resurrection. Consider with me this morning this subject under the title, The Presence of the Ascended Jesus, and then three parts in heaven, in earth, and in the future. First, we consider the presence of the ascended Jesus in heaven. And from here, we should take notice, first of all, that the Catechism explains that Jesus is really and truly gone from us. That in a really, in a very real sense that we must do justice to, Jesus left us and He left us to go to heaven. That was the essential result of the ascension, and that is how Jesus Himself referred to it. Time and time again, when Jesus referred to His future work, Jesus would list not only the fact that He must be, for example, raised up on the cross, that He must suffer and die on the cross, that he must be buried, that is, as to his presence, he must bodily go into the place called the grave, but also as to his presence, he must go away. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples, it's expedient, it's important, it's necessary for me to go away. And as the passage that we read makes clear, the disciples understood that. That something was going to happen in the near future in which Jesus would not be present with them. He would leave them to go to another location, another place. And in all those passages, Jesus was referring to His ascension. Literally, a change of place with regard to Jesus so that formerly where He was present, He was no longer present, at least not in the same way. 
and is now in a place that he was not before that, at least not in the same way. This is, I would like to point out for the sake of our own learning, something that's commented on in the creeds. And I would like to read a portion from a creed that we are not very familiar with, a creed called the Second Helvetic Confession. It says this, Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the same flesh, did ascend above all visible heavens into the very highest heaven, the seat of God, and blessed spirits unto the right hand of God the Father, of which the Lord spake, speaks, I go to prepare a place. Notice it references John 14 that we read this morning. And the well-known passage that we often consider at funerals, as was done this past week, with regard to the Brummel family, I go to prepare a place, refers to Jesus' ascension and his subsequent work upon leaving. Jesus, therefore, is present in heaven. And present in heaven in a way that he was not present previously. In fact, we must see that this ascension of Christ into heaven, as well as its subsequent sitting at the right hand of God, was the very goal and purpose of the resurrection. When we look back at the resurrection, we may look back at the resurrection with regard to its being part of the exaltation of Christ, a glorification of Him, which glorification we saw was of Him especially in His body. And we may look at the resurrection from the perspective, as the Catechism does, of its benefit for us. But we may also look at the resurrection from the perspective of the continuing work of Jesus Christ. And there we see, when we look at it closely, that Jesus arose in order that He might ascend. In other words, the explanation of the the nature of the ascension and the question of His presence has to do with the resurrection. And it has to do with the resurrection because it concerns His body. Jesus ascended in His body, that is, His human body. And we must recognize ascended also then in His human soul. Jesus being fully human has a human body as well as a human soul. And He ascended in body and soul, into heaven. And that's the significant difference. Obviously, Jesus being the eternal Son of God, lived previously and was present previously in heaven, in His person and as to His Spirit. And even, we may say, was there the entire time He was on earth but it was necessary and important for His work as the Son of Man, as the Christ, to assume 
a body and soul by the incarnation to labor on earth, to suffer and die in that body and soul, then to be raised and then to ascend. That's the amazing thing about the ascension. We are recognizing not merely or simply the presence of Jesus as to His person, the eternal Son of God, but that Jesus in our flesh and in our soul as a human being and then as one glorified in a way that none other can be. Jesus is present in heaven. We're not going to emphasize that this morning, but we should because it belongs to the exaltation of Christ. See that this was glory for Jesus. This was a wonderful, wonderful thing for Jesus. And you see some of that in Jesus' discussion with His disciples. He says, I must go away, of course, for your sakes. I have to do this for your benefit. But one thing the apostles could not recognize because they were very self-centered and self-absorbed was that this must occur for Jesus' sake. It is God's good pleasure that the very same Son who suffered and died and was so humiliated be also exalted to the highest heavens. This is something, too, the Reformed creeds emphasize. And here again, for our benefit, I want to quote from a creed that we are not very familiar with, but certainly a very good creed, the Westminster Confession which says that Christ is exalted in that He in our nature and as our head, triumphing over His enemies, visibly went up into the highest heaven. And as God in human flesh, He is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and in earth. This is part of what we rejoice in when we consider the ascension, especially as we will in a few weeks on Ascension Day. Let me make a plea to the congregation to show up for that special day of worship, at least with the same regard as you would for showing up to rejoice in the birth of Christ or the death of Christ on Good Friday, Often that's not the case, giving the impression that God's people do not think much of this day, if not even think much of its great benefit for us that the Catechism lays out, but what it is for Christ. If we love Christ and we rejoice in Christ, and He is the one that we praise, honor, and glorify, and we are not selfish and self-absorbed, as was often the case even with Jesus' own disciples, then we will want to celebrate the ascension day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The last time, and the last time that Jesus would be on this earth, body and soul, until He returns again. Certainly a day to remember. 
The practical importance is that Jesus is in present in heaven in human body and soul for our interest, according to the Catechism, for our interest, that is, for our benefit. We should all have a great interest in the benefit of Christ being no longer on the earth, but in heaven. That was something the disciples failed to see. They couldn't think of anything worse than Jesus leaving them. And Jesus had to instruct them, no, what's worse is if I stay. I must go. Now the catechism lists what Jesus must go for. The reason he must go. And the first is that he is our advocate in the presence of the Father in heaven. An advocate is one who is much like a lawyer. We speak about judge advocates, that is, those who labor on behalf of those being prosecuted in military courts. We speak about advocates as the legal or official name of lawyers in a court of law. Best indicates what Jesus is doing as our Advocate, As you know, advocates represent someone in a court of law before a judge. They make pleas on behalf of the person that they represent. They make the best legal arguments knowing the law for those they represent. Arguments that perhaps those they represent could not or would not make on their own behalf. And Jesus does that. And speaks about that. My little children, if any sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And this is exactly how Jesus is describing Himself in John 14, verse 16, when He says that He must go, and when He goes, I will pray the Father and send another. Then if you reference that, Back to 1 John 2, you're going to discover that that another, even the Comforter, is one who's related to the Advocate. He advocates in the presence of his Father. That indicates a very wonderful thing about our lawyer, our Advocate. We want, of course, an Advocate who knows the law, who understands the legal ramifications of arguments and other such things in the earthly sphere. Well, that's certainly true of Jesus. Jesus is not able to be excelled as an advocate on our behalf. He knows the law. He knows the way it works. He knows the court, but even more especially, He knows the judge who is His Father. This Father who has in His power the power to bless or to curse, to justify or to damn. This Father who has in His hands all of our life and all of the circumstances of our life, this One, our Advocate, knows personally, has known eternally, and is in His own bosom. And yet, 
the interesting and important fact that the Scriptures emphasize is when Jesus advocates, when he pleads for our behalf before God, he does not do so on the basis of that relationship. He does not plead, now, Father, Father, release these people from their sins because I am your Son. You have to listen to me. I love you. No. He bases his pleadings and his arguments on the law. He bases them, more specifically, on the fact that according to the law, he fulfilled every requirement of the law. He pleads, in other words, on the basis of his own atoning death, that is, his redemption and purchase of us, as well as his own righteousness. That's what he points to when he pleads before the Father. Scriptures and the Confessions also describe this advocacy as intercession and reminds us that there's really two basic things that Jesus intercedes on our behalf for. The first is that our sins may be forgiven. That is, He pleads for our righteousness. He pleads that God view us and deal with us and treat us as those who are righteous. Again, the very goal of His death and resurrection. In the second place, He pleads that God will bless us with all good for both body and soul, which is really the goal of righteousness. It's a prayer, twofold one, advocacy, that God Consider us righteous, impute His righteousness to us, and therefore, because of that, bless us with all blessings, body, and soul. Jesus makes this advocacy, this intercession, on behalf of the entire church. We read of that in John 17, where Jesus said, I pray not for the world, but for those given Me. He was there pleading, making advocacy even on earth and every member in particular. Oh, how often Jesus mentioned how he prayed even for individual members like he did Peter in Luke chapter 22. Secondly, Jesus is present in heaven as a sure pledge. The Catechism says as a pledge specifically that he as the head will take us up to Himself, us, His members. That's why we emphasize there has to be a real separation, a real difference in location between us and Jesus. That He is, in a very real sense, absent. Because part of His work is that He is a sure pledge that although there is an absence and a separation, He will take us to Himself in a way that we are not now. Again, Jesus prayed for this in John 17, Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given Me be with Me where I am. And the where I am was a reference to where I am soon to be in heaven. That's evident when He says that they may behold My glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. 
This is related to his prayer that God bestow all good upon us, body and soul. The greatest good, the highest good, the greatest blessedness is to be where Christ is. It is not simply to be united with Him by faith, but to actually be in His presence, which explains some of the consternation of the disciples and why they did mourn over Jesus leaving. But Jesus understood there would be a better and more glorious being with Him that would be made possible only by His ascension. And finally, the presence of Jesus is important that He may from there send His Holy Spirit as our earnest. Not going to explain that in detail, but an earnest is an initial blessing. A first fruit. It is like a down payment. It is a certain promise and oath given through a material or spiritual reality that one has and is given so that he knows there's something more that is coming. Again, if Jesus' work was finished, as if there were no more work for Jesus to do, there would be no need for Jesus to be both a pledge in heaven and send the Spirit as in earnest. And that's what we have to remember. Jesus emphasized this. We don't always understand it. Why did He have to leave to do that? But it's related to how the Spirit is in earnest and how we have the Spirit. But simply note now that Jesus knew and He continues to know how important it was that He ascended in order for that to happen. And exactly because He was ascended as to His body and soul, as to His physical nature, we would need in earnest that He would still be with us and He was coming again in another sense. And that's what our second point regards Jesus' presence with us in earth. We have to address the fact, well, Reverend, you said he's gone, he's left us, he's departed. Is he still with us? That's the same question the disciples had in the upper room. They were perplexed, they were puzzled. How can this be? Not only are we struggling with where Jesus is going and how he will be gone, but if he's gone, how are we going to survive? How are we going to live? How are we going to be blessed? And so Jesus makes clear, I am returning. I'm not returning in the same sense that I am here now, but I am returning. I will literally be present with you. So we must always do justice to that. We may never say Jesus is completely absent and away from us. Norway may say that Jesus is so present with us that there's not any sort of separation or difference. And the key is remembering that He's with us spiritually, by His Spirit, that He sends as an earnest. And He is separated from us as regards to His body, human body, and human soul. Now, going to briefly address questions and answers 47 and 48, because that has to do with a controversy that occurred at the time of the Reformation with the followers of Martin Luther which basically said the importance of the ascension was this. This is really what 
happened. That the human nature of Jesus Christ took on the qualities or virtues of the divine nature. And particularly one of them, which is that his human nature now became omnipresent. And this was their explanation of how Jesus could be present with us in the supper. All the branches of the, or at least the Lutheran and Calvinistic branch of the Reformation recognized that in the Lord's Supper, we truly and really eat and drink Christ. That means He has to be present somehow. That it has to be true in a very real sense. This is my body and blood that you drink. Well, how can that be? And the followers of Luther said, well, it's because he's physically present, because his physical nature, his body and soul, took on the qualities of the divine, and one of those is omnipresence. The Calvinists said, that's not correct, that's wrong. That's essentially, in the first place, what the Catholics say, that there's a physical presence of Jesus Christ in the Supper, and the error of that is that means then that everyone who partakes of the bread and the wine literally partakes to their blessedness of Jesus Christ. And that can't be because then grace is common and grace is ineffectual. Besides that, there's another problem. The ancient creeds of the church make clear that the two natures of Christ may never be confused or mixed that the human nature of Christ always remains human with everything that human is except sin, and the divine always remains divine. That is, the human nature can't be omnipresent, because then it would no longer be human. You and I will never be omnipresent. No creature can be. It was glorified. The human nature was exalted, but that doesn't make it omnipresent. Now the Lutherans responded against the Calvinists by saying, Aha! Your explanation is that Christ is present spiritually, only spiritually. Christ is present when He sent His Spirit. We get that, but we have an objection. Our objection is basically twofold. Number one is that's not real. They didn't often say that, but that's the result. That when we say Jesus is present spiritually by His Spirit, when you object to that, you're really saying <coughs> that presence isn't a real presence. Well, it is. But their main objection is, you've just separated the two natures. If Christ is present in heaven in His human nature, and He's only present with us in His spiritual nature, you've separated the two. And the old ancient creed that you cite also says that those two natures may never be divided or separated. Aha! And so the Catechism attempts to explain that. And the explanation is very simple, which is, no, they, they can't be separated but don't forget, it's the divine nature that's omnipresent. So that nature of Christ, omnipresent nature of Christ in His Spirit is everywhere, including now here on the earth with us, and it remains united to the human nature. So the very same Christ who is now in His human nature in heaven is with us so that truly through the Spirit we partake of His body and His blood in the supper. Now that might seem like perhaps a pedantic, minuscule argument 
perhaps some theological minutia, but as is often the case over what seems to be perhaps somewhat trivial arguments. This one was by no means trivial. It had to do with the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, and many other things, the grace of God. It caused the church to develop develop the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, develop the real presence and blessedness of the children of God in the covenant through the presence of the Spirit. And we do justice to that this morning by pointing out that Christ, therefore, in His Spirit, is really, really present. Now, here's the difficulty. Well, why did Christ have to ascend for that to happen? And the answer is, Because we're not simply talking about the Holy Spirit as the third person of the triune God, but the Holy Spirit as given to Jesus as His own personal Spirit. It's not simply the Spirit of God generally, but the Holy Spirit given to Jesus as His own Spirit. And the Spirit now of the risen and ascended Christ. That Spirit. The Spirit of one who had actually done that. So we're not talking now simply about the Spirit of God in providence, the presence of God in all the world through His might and His power. It's related to that, of course, but we're talking about His particular Spirit given particularly to Jesus Christ to do the particular work of atonement and saving the elect children of God that is a Spirit of grace and grace only. And what the Scriptures point out, and I'll be brief because we will have opportunity to consider this down the road when we consider Ascension Day and when we consider the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, is when one sees that Spirit, he really receives Christ. That's real. You see, one cannot dismiss the salvation of the children of God, minimize the, the, the salvation of the children of God, their, for example, life, by saying that all we are is completely dead. That's done. The child of God, even the regenerated child of God, some have said, is only depraved. That's all he is, nothing more. Or to say that the regenerated child of God cannot love God, it's impossible. Or he doesn't believe. That's said. That's said even in the interest of grace. But when you do that, you have just denied the Holy Spirit. You've denied the reason for the ascension. You deny the continuing work and presence of Jesus Christ with us because that is how he's present. One knows Jesus is present by knowing he is alive. By recognizing the great change in one's attitude toward sin. By recognizing the great change in one's walk of life. By noticing, for example, that previously I hated God, now I find love in my heart for Him. Oh yes, I still find plenty of hatred, that's sin, but I also find something else, love. I find faith in such things. Well, what is that? Well, those are really all descriptions of the presence of Jesus Christ through His Spirit. Christ with us, Christ for us, Christ in us, Christ working through us. Faith is the Spirit's own reaching out through us, in our own person, through our own person, so that we truly believe 
in this ascended Savior whom we've never seen in the flesh. We can only believe Him. That's why we're saved by faith and faith alone. That's really the explanation. If you ask why that is, the answer is because He's in heaven. And there's only one way to access Him. There's only one way to be part of Him. There's only one way to be joined to Him. There's only one way to be blessed with Him, and that's through faith. That will change. That brings us to the last point, really, of the sermon. And that is, the ascension of Jesus Christ indicates a presence in the future, a change in the future. There's something that we have to consider. We consider not only the presence of Jesus in heaven now, and His presence with us now in the earth. But what about the future? And there's two things about that that we recognize this morning. The first is that in the future, if one has Jesus' presence now, if Jesus is present with me now and with you now, if He resides in your heart by His Spirit, so that when you possess His Spirit, you possess Jesus Christ, you have Him as your own, you may be certain without a shadow of a doubt that that will never change. Now and then in the future. And I mean during your life. Faith believes that. Oh, faith acknowledges that there may be times because of my stubbornness and my rebellion, the Spirit may withdraw for a time. This, the creeds make that confessional with us. But never completely or entirely. Ever. It's an amazing thing. Faith is certain about that. Faith never doubts that. The same faith that is the work of the Spirit, that is the gift of the Spirit, also believes that. I'm certain about that. I know that doubt that, to be anxious about that is unbelief. That's not faith, that's unbelief. I may be certain that Christ will be present even in my death. My death, my own departure from this life, my descent into the grave. You go back. What's Jesus doing now? Well, He's giving us a sure pledge and an earnest. And the result of that intercession and that sure pledge and that earnest is, I am certain about this even with regard to my death. What's my only comfort in life and in death? That I belong. So we consider that in the future, even with regard to death. I fear not death because Christ is with me, though He be ascended into heaven. That's true of the future and my judgment. I will be judged. I will be judged with regard to the deeds that I have done and you have done, both in body and in soul. They will be brought to light. They will be judged. And I may be certain, because of the presence of Jesus Christ now and also in the future, that He will be there. And the same One who now is an advocate and a pledge and is given an earnest will be the judge. We'll be standing there. We'll be looking at me and looking at you the same way He does now and did a long time ago on the cross. But especially, but especially now it says something about the future with regard to the same body and soul with which He is no longer present. The same One who left, who really truly left, and is glorified and exalted in heaven, that one is going to return. Which is one reason, one reason the church needs 
it's sins forgiven. Why we need that? Because that is going to be awesome. Oh, it's the same one, but it's the exalted one. The one who in his human nature has been living in the face of God before all his glory, who is radiating with all the glory of the triune God. Amazing. Terrible. Awesome. Is going to return. Return in order to judge. Return in order to create all things. And the ascension says to me, again through the presence of Jesus Christ, that I need not fear that, but rather I should look forward to it. And know that when He returns, there's also going to be another change, and that is I will be and you will be in His presence forevermore, again in a way that we were not either on earth or in heaven. And that is also bodily glorified in our own resurrection's body with the same glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall be present with us. That's the benefit of the ascension. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the instruction of the catechism and the great hope and the great blessedness that it affords us. We thank Thee for the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and His glory, and we look eagerly for His return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.